We'll make a new name for Electron. It'll be called Selectron. That's actually a fantastic. <laughs> can we make that? Can we make that our uh, drop-down form component library? Selectron. <laughs> That's actually amazing. talking about today put it on the screen we are putting this on the screen so greg found this fantastic article on dev.2 hmm? first website in the planet earth hallowed halls hallowed halls of dev.2 so this is an article from pretty recently just a couple weeks ago called 22 miraculous tools for react developers in 2019 yeah i like this article because it has some tools that i've used and honestly some tools that i never even knew existed pretty cool yeah we developers are always looking for a better mousetrap i think that that's part of what we do and so lists like these are helpful listicles it, the idea is not that you're going to automatically take all 22 of these and, and incorporate into your workflow immediately but but with a wide enough net you'll catch some fish some of them are pretty useful like the first one. First one on the list webpack bundle analyzer greg what is this all right so the way that webpack works is it takes all the things that you import into your React app, or whatever you're building, let's just stick with React for doing this, whatever you're building, it takes all those packages and it puts them into either a single JavaScript file or many JavaScript files, depending on something called code splitting. What this library does is there's a built-in feature to Webpack called Stats Analyzer. You can run it with dash dash analyze stats or something out of some command, I don't know, it's, you look it up. And it will generate a stats JSON file. In that stats JSON file is all of this data. It has the relative size of every single import, how much space it's taking in your bundle, and what bundle it belongs to. What this tool does is it creates a website view of that so that you can actually see all the different packages that are inside of your Webpack bundle and how big they are. Yes, this is pretty neat. This is visualizing all the stuff that Greg just talked about in what's called a heat map. Ooh, science. That's just a type of No, let's let you have it, science. Graph. There's, your, there's your business account. degree I'm not right there. claiming that one. There's your business degree right there. But this Boom. does kind of help visualize exactly what is going on in your bundle, right? Because a lot of times when you run your Webpack, you've written a bunch of React, you've written a bunch of GraphQL, you've written a bunch of CSS, and you just hit, hey, Webpack, go do this thing. And it makes it all into a thing that works in the browser. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people don't really ask questions about what happens between the thing that I type and the webpack and what's going on and what that actually is. This tool will actually allow you to visualize what your webpack bundle is, what the actual application that you're running is. It'll show you the relative sizes of different files. It'll show you the relative sizes of different packages that you're pulling in. It's got a lot of pretty colors. It's got some shades. Mm -hmm. shading from dark to light one one thing that it actually does that is obvious but is really hard to figure out it actually shows you the bundles the chunk sizes it shows yes. you how big each bundle is and yes. the name of it and both by relative size so the bigger parts of the bundle are actually larger squares on this heat map 
Uh, but also, I think it breaks down like the actual numbers at some point too, right? You can actually see um, like this you don't is really need fourteen thousand gigabytes, and this one's two hundred k or something like that. I think you can if you highlight it, but you really just need to know the relative sizes. Yeah, the relative sizes. Because you know how big the bundle is, because you just look at the JavaScript files. Yeah. But if you don't know that, there's a disk folder that has JavaScript files. It'll show it to you. Look at the sizes of things. And one thing that this helps you is that if you have data and you can measure things, then you can figure out how things are doing. So, so what, let me give you a good example of when you would do this. Did when, you know? How do you usually import things from Lodash? This is a trick question. No, just answer how you, how, if you were to be like, I need find, how would I import it from I would do Lodash? import find from Lodash backslash find. Okay. And why would you do that? Because you don't want to import the entire Lodash package. Okay. And where does, where is that necessary or why does that matter? Because the entire Lodash package is ginormous. Okay. And then why, why do you know that? Because I've imported the entire Lodash package and it's ginormous. But how, if you weren't paying attention to the size of your bundle, how would you even know that it was ginormous? How would you know that that was the reason why it was ginormous? You wouldn't. You wouldn't. That's right. That's, That's the point right. I was making with the data is that one of the things that I've found in the times I've used this is that you start to see a cast of usual suspects. You do. On these lists. You know what right? the you biggest one the I've ever seen memes. is? You know what the biggest one I've ever seen is? What's that? Google's lib phone number huge like two megs oh man phone numbers are hard they are very hard Internet phone numbers and dates are hard that's an aside yeah uh moment is really big too moment is really big especially with time zones but with the the same names showing up over and over and over that's where people go that's too big we need to build a better mousetrap we need to do it differently and that's where kind of advancement in newer packages doing things, newer ways of doing things, newer uh, methods of bundling and code splitting like we were talking about. That's where those things come from. Once you see where the problems are using a tool like this, you can now move on to actually fixing those problems. So mm -hmm. this is always a good tool to have. I always feel like visualizations and ways of communicating data, not just by raw numbers, is always a good thing and helps get the point across a lot better. So this yeah. is a good one to start off this list. I'm I'm happy with this one. I'm a really good, I'm a really visual person. So when I see like numbers come out on the output of this, it's like, oh, this is 237 kilobytes. and has the big next to it. And it says like, that's really big. If it's like a meg or something. Like that makes sense to me. But visually seeing individually in each package what is big per se is important because you can really think like, okay, if you're using Moment and you do need to know like what is the most common use case of Moment? Most most visually uh, use case of dates, right? Some sort of date. The most common reason why people use Moment, besides to understand and compare and diff dates, like actual, like is you know, add two minutes to this date and then do something. Is before, is after. Is before, like is after. All that. There's all these utility functions. Okay, so there's all those. Let's just take those for a second and say that's not why they use it, even though it is. Let's just take those aside because there's another library that's very similar to that. And the other use case of it is getting that about four seconds ago, about five days ago, about 10 minutes ago. That simple conversion to human readable time- is ridiculous. Is annoying to build. It is hard. And Moment does it by default, and it does it in the common way that people understand because they've, it's been in the thing that's been used on the internet forever, right? So you're importing Moment just to get that usually. Or, yeah, you're also maybe comparing time zones and calculating like time differences. Like, is this date that I'm getting from the server in the future? Okay, well, if you're- Time sucks. If you were just looking at the thing as a computer, it's just a timestamp or it's a string. So parsing it into an actual time, like a JavaScript date time, 
and then diffing it by saying, is it later or before or after? Is it within 20 minutes from now? All that kind of stuff. It can do all those cool things. But, you know, a lot of the times, unless you're doing like a data intensive or calendar or like time-based application, a lot of people just literally just pull it in to get the about five seconds ago on their blog posts. Yeah, don't do that. Maybe don't do that. Now, there's another library called Date Functions that does all of those things that I just said. It compares his dates before, is it after? Don't you it... mean don't you mean date FNS? Sure. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. I've always called it date FNS and I don't know why, because that's the actual name of the package. Well, so FN like is the mathematical name for function. FNS. Plural. FNs. Plural. You can't pluralize more than one. Abbreviation. I'm sorry. You just can't. You just can't. That might be fair, but date functions might be too long. So anyways, functions make sense. that library is like one-tenth of the size of Moment. And, and it does all the same things. Well, it doesn't do all the same things, but it does most of the things that people need. Like, is this date before this date? Is it after this date? Add two hours to it. All that stuff. The other part of Moment that's really big is the time zones. So if you need to know, like, is this thing in a different time, like a completely different time zone, those two libraries together are like almost five, 600 kilobytes. It's insane. There's another library called SpaceTime that does comparisons between time zones. When I used it early on, it was really fresh. I was like, oh, this is cool. It has the same stuff that, you know, Moment Time Zone has, but it, it doesn't uh, have the weight of it. It's a lot smaller. But then there was like things like I didn't understand the moment date, uh, like, you know, the S for second or big S for seconds with the About extra the zeros. It didn't understand shorthand. the formatting a moment. And I'm like, why are you going to build a library that competes with moment time zone and not understand the formatting? I even commented on the GitHub about that. And the guy was like, oh, you're right. And then he built it. And I don't, at that point, I had given up because. Did, did you donate to him? Uh, I donate exposure. Can't no, pay I'm rent with exposure. Again. I'm just kidding. No, I don't think I, I, I didn't end up using his library. I don't know. Oh, well, that, that's okay. Then. Anyways, Sorry. it's very useful to realize how big things are, yada, 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 a little bit on time and why it's specifically done that way or why. It's a good example of explaining why you would need this library. But I used that library just the other day to help with some code splitting stuff I was doing because I was doing code splitting manually. Oof. Uh, with using, I actually used um, Oof. React, Lazy, and Suspense. Oh. And it worked. It definitely works. I mean, obviously it works, but it definitely worked with with uh, Webpack. It made chunks. It did what it was supposed to do. But it doesn't work server rendered. So you have to use something like... Uh, um, Can you do it before you actually build the server rendered? No. It, uh, when it gets built with uh, render to string or whatever the server rendering does, it doesn't, it doesn't understand it. Because there's the other, different. There's other, no, there's other libraries that do support it, but they do it differently. Um but either way, I was doing code splitting on something and I ended up using a different library. I don't remember what it was. I don't remember. But uh, that's a perfect use case for a tool like that. I want to hear about our listeners who run that tool. If you've never run it on one of your apps, your homework assignment do it. is to go run it on your app and let us know what you find. Is your app 100K? Is it 100 gigabytes? I want to know. Let us know. Mm-hmm. Tell us what the what the biggest offenders that you find are. We'll we'll post the best ones. Hit us up on Twitter. Add us on Twitter. Let us know there. All right, moving on. Next one. React Proto. What is this, Greg? Tell me. This is a tool that uh, you well, you had. There was a tool that was very similar to it that people might know. So React Proto, from what this is showing us, is a kind of a design prototyping tool, and it gives you some nice colored boxes. Mm -hmm. That you would, that are kind of visual representations of React components on a screen. Now, this to me reminds me of a tool that the designers at my office use called Framer X. 
Framework X is also a design tool that's similar to this, but Framework X is actually a React app that runs React components that's designed to design apps using React components. So it's code mm. as design as code. And this looks very similar to that. They might be, my assumption is that one is based on the other or, or something along those well, lines. Well, this one so. doesn't actually deal with visuals. All it does is it allows you to, you ever had that conversation with somebody where you're like, how should we, like just take like the most common use case of something where this would matter. You have a search box and a result box. Which side of the page do you put it on, Greg? Do I? Which side of the page do you put the search box on, Greg? Do you put it in the middle? Do you put it on the left? That's what I'm saying. No, that's that's not what this is for. No, no, let me finish. That's not what it's for. So yes, it's sort of for that, but it's actually designed not necessarily where does it actually go in the page. It's actually designed to define, yeah, I know it's visually showing you where it is, but it's actually not. What it's doing is it's showing you how to break up the components that are within those things. Because designers are just like, okay, I have the search box up here, and then below it I have the result. Or they may say, well, they may visually say the results go here, search box goes here, right, on the top. But you actually have to think about like, you, you have to think about where the actual data is coming from. So when you think about, like when you think about this, so we're looking, <laughs> he loves how the, the, when you're reading this article, highlight an image and it kind of tilts to the side, it really breaks Albert's brain. Oh man. So what it's doing is you're basically saying like on the top of the page up there in this picture that they have is like the header. But imagine that's the search box, the search area, search container, right? Inside of there could be another component that's the actual search module. And within that could be the search input. And with that, within that could be the search button. Yeah, showing the kind of the relationship of the components to each other. Yes, and it also, you can set up props. So you can say Yeah, there's like, a tab for props over here on yeah. the right. So you, so can, you oh, give geez. it you give it yeah. props and you say like, okay, well, where in this result set, the search and result set where you would you actually store, let's just ignore, you're not using Redux, right? Where would you store the results of the search? Depending on where it needs to end up, yeah. that This gives you, kind of like the other tool, this gives you a visual representation of where your props start and where they go. Yes, and also what components are named what yep. and how are they structured so that when you're going, like if you spend the time to do this, when you're building a really complicated app, you already know and you can sit here and hash out and argue okay, well, do the props of the results of the search exist with the search box or did it exist in the results? Or do they exist in some wrapping container that wraps both of them? And maybe that wrapping container is a context provider. You yeah, know? this is a, this is a neat tool. I see this uh, being very useful for uh, teaching like very basic React concepts to people who maybe yeah. has, have never seen it or before. Or prototyping, really. I have conversations I mean, you can all the time. This too, yeah. I have conversations all the time at work about structuring React components and what's the best way to structure like, uh, you know, a dev at work was rebuilding a, a form and through like a couple little questions that he asked me, he went and built a whole better way of doing forms that iterate over a JSON and render the forms. Yeah. Inputs and stuff. This is and pretty cool. We could have had, we could have used that tool to have this conversation, but instead we have uh, desks that you can draw on with dry erase pens and it's really cool. I mean, that's neat too. I've done that. I've done, I've written on whiteboards and I've written on, um, when I was first learning React, I did a lot of uh, stickies. Mm. I would like... Such a paper waster. Well, it was hard to... I think for me, having something physically to touch and move it around helped. But like the the idea of wrapping stuff within other things wasn't as easy. Anyway, this tool looks really cool. Yeah, I like how it uses the different shapes and the different colors to differentiate what goes where in terms of... Not even, that, not even uh, just adjacent to each other, but within each other. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it, it handles that really well in a nice, clean. I'm pretty sure case, it's so. obviously interactive. When you highlight it, it'll be like, this is the header and this is its props. And then you can click on one and it'll show you there. It'll I show might end up using this soon because we're going to be doing some brand uh, website front-end redesign. Yeah, that seems like a... Whoa, like a cool it's a zoomed-in photo. Yeah, let's zoom back out here. So then I need to talk about how you actually define the components. Okay, number Two, three. 2,000 stars on GitHub. That's a lot of stars. I think it's totally open source. That's pretty cool. That's cool. Good job, Microsoft. Uh, Number three, why did you update? Mm -hmm. I'm not not asking you that, Greg. That's actually the name of the package. Oh, well, okay. So this is a common uh, thing with React. And if you're really getting into performance optimizations and you're trying to figure out why did a component actually update, there's one way that you can do it. You can just... What I've done a lot in the past is I've, you know, added a component did update... And then you, you know, you define the previous props and the next props and the next state and whatever, all that stuff. The previous, whatever I think it passes in, the next props and the next state. And you have the current props and the current state in the, con- in the, in the this, in the context. And basically, you'll be like, okay, well, what were the old props? What were the new props? And you'll, you know, pipe them to the console and you'll look at them and you'll be like, okay, well, the old props, oh, they didn't have that. The new props, they have this. Or they're the same, whatever. So you're trying to like, maybe you're trying to add... Um, a memo, like a React memo to figure out, to make something not update, you turn off the memo and you see what the props are coming in and what it actually puts to the console is text that sounds really, really smart like this. Child 2, re-rendered because the props object itself changed but its values are all equal. This could have been avoided by making the component pure or by preventing its further, it f- its father from re-rendering. So, and then it shows you the prev props. Child, child 2, the new does not equal child number two, next prop. So I don't know why it's saying that those aren't doesn't, No, I think it's saying it's an equality check, but it's poor consoling. That might be custom consoling that he did, but basically he's saying, you know, do those two not equal each other and they're obviously the same. Well, it's saying, so the, I think you have to take both of the messages in context, right? The first one is kind of a hard-coded message that's probably based on some like common scenarios of yeah. why people are Well, that's probably this. the library and then the other one is him. Or maybe no, they're, it, both, they're both from the library. I think that it, well, it's I've written twofold. that exact. I've written that prev props and next props a hundred thousand times in React components, just yeah. to see what the two props. Yeah, are. so this one's doing it for you. So it's kind of a nice little shortcut. But I think what this is saying is that, I mean, it says it in the message. The props, the props values are equal. Yeah, but the object itself changed. So that means it's not the props object of what's going on in your actual component. It's probably something higher up. Well, yeah, he's saying that the father is passing it a new. Something, prop, something being the passed prop to object. it. Well, because everything by JavaScript oh, it's is getting by, repassed. Everything in JavaScript is by reference. So it's getting a new, completely new object, even though the value is the same. Yeah, so that's pretty neat because that this is a very uh, fundamental uh, thing with understanding React and how the information flows up and down mm-hmm. from parent to child components. And a lot of times it's hard to get visibility into that actual path. So this tool is really nice. I like these error messages too because it's very clear about what it's talking about, and then it shows you kind of programmatically what it's actually talking about, right? It's showing you the previous props and next props. The actual information itself is the same. So yeah. the only way that the object would have changed would have been higher up. Yeah, and I have spent hours debugging this with more complicated data than just than just children as a text field. Like if you're dealing with like a nested object of some kind, you know, it it, it becomes more difficult. And if they have deep diff in there, I don't know if they do, but if they have deep difference between two like fully deep objects then, you know, that would make it even more powerful. But 
Yeah, I bet. I bet some of those. Um, I don't know why they would build it without a deep diff built in. But. Well, I bet some of those uh, ES twenty nineteen methods we talked about last week probably will help with their diffing going forward when those features actually get get passed in. So this one, this one's a, a nice one. I, mm-hmm. I'm gonna. I'm what gonna do you think about the next one? one? Do you think the next one needs to be there? What about the next one? I mean, I've never heard of this before. Never what heard of it this? either. Number four. Create. Crate. Crate. rat. Crate. Re. Re. We're being silly. This is Create React app. Uh, yeah, this one's pretty... This is pretty ubiquitous. If you've written any sort of React in the last... Ever? I'm going to say year and a half. If you've written any sort of React since the beginning of like 2018, you've probably run this program. Mm. I think it's worth having there, but I, I just... Honestly, the fact that it's number four doesn't really make any sense to me because if someone's looking at this list and they understand why did my component update, they've probably seen Create React app. So I don't know why it needs to be on this list. Maybe. But I guess just to, to, just to remind you, sake, maybe, yeah. sake, they don't want to not have it there and have people like message them and be like, why didn't you put Create React app in there? Well, because you obviously, should know. Because you should know how to use it anyways. You should know. Uh, it did add the, the TypeScript flag, which was a thing that you had to actually go in and manually add yourself. What is, uh, is Ta script? Type A? Type A? Type A script? Type A script. What is that? That's so weird. I know. I've never seen that before in my life. so weird. Let's move on to the next one. Moving on. I'm not going to talk about TypeScript again. Create React app. I mean, there's a bazillion different places you can get more info on that. So check that out. All right. Number five. React Lifecycle Visualizer. Mm-hmm. This sounds a lot like the other thing. Why did you update yeah, and it even says, uh, so similar to why did you render, you can enable any component of your choice to bring out the lifecycle visualizer. So this is cool. Um, I don't know what this one thinks about hooks, though, but let's ignore hooks for a second. But probably, This is probably pre-hooks, so. Potentially, or it works with hooks and Something understands. Life cycle in there. I don't know. It understands the lifecycle is coming out of hooks. But either way, what it does is, it, you know, you ever have those times where your you do have a componented update, you do have a get derived state from props, you have all these lifecycle methods, and you're just like, how are they integrating with each other? How are they working? Like, I understand the flow of the way that it should happen, but for some reason, like, whenever this component gets to the componented update state, my data's not right. Yeah. But, you know, you don't realize that get derived state from props is, like, changing the state. Like, I don't know, whatever it is. You may not know. So what this guy will do is it will actually follow the lifecycle. It's a hawk that you can add to a component called trace lifecycle, that will allow you to visualize. They actually have a visualizing provider and an enhanced trace component and a logger. And it will essentially, between those things, you can kind of debug the entire lifecycle of a component. So it'll say, in this case, it's Oh, this saying, is the actual app. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what it outputs. So it's saying it constructs, it gets derived straight from props, it renders, component did mount, it got another derived, derived state from props, then should component update was triggered because it got re-rendered. Then it rendered, oh man, I love that tilt. How do you tell which ones? Because it's it's printing them out as trace component one, trace component two, trace component three. How do you tell which one's which in your code? Well, all the ones are traced component one, and then two is the second component. But like where in here? Uh, I think it's based on, you probably give it a name. I don't know. There's probably a name to the hawk. or it's it just, be a way to name it. Like It just knows, or maybe there's more than one of them. I don't know. But either way, what it's showing you here is that it constructs, it gets derived state data, it renders... And then something causes it to, well, then it mounts and then it gets derived states again and then it does should component update. So something caught it, caught it to re-render. So he, something is giving it new props right after it renders. So it rendered twice. Yeah. But you can see that and you can see every single step it went through. You can see the order. Now, both of these two things together, why did you update and this, this one, 
<clears throat> could be really helpful for when you're trying to debug maybe not necessarily the data jujitsu kind of stuff that we've dealt with in the past, but just like trying to trace the data through a component, at least within the context of that component itself. Because the other one will tell you like, the, maybe the parent component got us re-rendered, but it doesn't really help you with like, if you have really complicated life cycles and context providers re-rendering and all this weird stuff happening, it's not going to help you so much with that. But you could, you know, you could put one of these tracers on the context provider potentially and see why it's re-rendering. Yeah, you're going to have to actually get pretty narrow with what you're targeting using this or the information is not going to be very helpful for you. Yeah, it might help you with like one component, but like there's... Yeah, if you get too high up, like if you have a stack of like five or six mm -hmm. React components in whatever you're targeting here, then like the, the, the information that this spits out is just going to be too much to be helpful. Yeah. And you'll have, you, you might run into a thing where it's like render, 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 and you won't be able to tell which one's which or like what is triggering what. So this is kind of a... It's an aid. It's an aid. It's kind of a last kind of mile kind of thing. Like once you've narrowed it down to like this one component that has one child is misbehaving, I need to know why. This is one of those things, this goes back to like the age old argument about whether or not you do debugging with, debu with like breakpoints or you console. Even on languages that support breakpoints, I still sometimes just system dot out like in Java. I yeah. can totally do a trace on it, do debugger with IntelliJ, and I still put console logs. I in. do console. I almost I default to console. That's logs. because Node doesn't have debugging unless you're in the browser. Unless you're in the browser, you're not always in the browser. You're not always in the browser. So sometimes it's like you're context switching between like the back end and the front end, and you're like, "Well, I'm going to console in the back end because I don't have any kind of debugger." There are debuggers for for Node in the CLI or like actual Node Node. Um, but some of them just like tell V8 to tell a Chrome window to show you a breakpoint. So you're really just dealing with Chrome. But whatever. Or IntelliJ can do it. IntelliJ can get into debugger onto node code. But a lot of the times you don't always have those things available to you when you end up just doing console logs. So the point I'm trying to make is like with these guys, you can just console log across your lifecycle events to see what the data is. Or you can maybe wrap a component around it. But the problem is, what are you going to do? Are you actually going to wire up a provider? And wire up a logger and wire up a, a, a hawk on your component, or are you just going to console log? You're probably just going to console log. Console log because it's it's like a straightforward tool. Right? Yeah, it's but it doesn't like always. It's all this is really doing, minus the the thing that does the GUI around it. It's it's wrapping a GUI for the log. Yeah. <laughs> like really, that's all it's doing. You could just put a console log in your show component update, and you know it triggered. It's just injecting a bunch of console logs and then putting them in the next GUI for you. Yes, which is actually fine. Like not even saying that that's a bad thing. Uh, a lot of times, putting together simple tools uh, in a easily digestible, easily usable way is all you need. So this next one is number six. It's called Guppy. Yeah, which sounds like a cool name, and I'm I'm taking a look at it. It's a cool little interface, but then I'm starting to look at it, and I'm going, "What is this actually doing?" I love how it's running on Windows too. Uh, it's so it's, presumptuous. This is definitely Electron. No, so. that's a Windows Xbox. I know that because now I have... I know, but this is definitely an Electron app. You can tell just by no, looking No, no, I know. But I mean, it's running. he's running it on Windows, is what I'm saying. It's very presumptuous. Well, some people... Assume definitely. people write code on Windows. Don't well, at me. Some people write code on Windows. All right, so Guppy looks really nice, has a nice clean UI, gives you a lot of information. But the more I look at this, Greg, this looks like a GUI for my package JSON. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Because all this is doing is listing out the things that I have listed out in my package JSON. Yeah, it had some stuff, like whether or not it's up to date. 
you know, you can update it. Yeah, I, I don't know. It gives you information about the various packages you have installed. Uh, it lets you run your NPM scripts. Gives you statuses on those. It gives you a nice little window to show you your actual output. Uh, I love so you that can tilting. do that. There's a button for adding dependencies, so you can actually hit a button to install new. Maybe it has a NPM cool search packages. thing that goes that searches npm for you, and then that's one thing that I always find interesting is that when you want to find a new package or something, you got to leave the terminal, go to Chrome anyways, yep, and then search npm for something for 12 years, yep. try to find sift through all the packages that are not maintained anymore to find the one you want, install it, figure out it's a, the wrong, it doesn't work very well after two hours. And then go to the other one that was the competitor to it. And then you have your Jesus moment where you're like, ah, oh, that's the one I wanted. Yeah. And is, then it's finally in there. Yeah, you're right. This this actual window, there's a little window that uh, it's, it lists out all the dependencies you have installed. And then when you click on it, it has a little window that shows a little bit of information about the dependency itself. The version yeah, like numbers. the license. License. Last published. Links to GitHub. You can delete it from here as well. This is actually super helpful. And this makes me think that uh, it could be something that's handled like inside of your code editors. Like this seems so in the lane of something that a VS Code extension would do because yeah. they do this with their other extensions where they give you a little page of information before you actually install the thing so you can figure out what it is. You know where this comes from? I just remembered this. And install it. What's that? There was a Maven. <laughs> the IntelliJ used to be about right. a Maven yeah, it's, the same exact, it's the same exact thing. It just reads the file. It reads the information. And creates a GUI on it. And creates a GUI so you can actually know what you're installing instead of having to blind install something yeah, or read a limited amount of information on it. Go try to use it. Hopefully you can figure out the documentation. Hopefully nothing breaks when you do it. Bang your head against it for a while. I mean, this would be cool if it wrapped related components. Like right now it's just showing you dependencies. Well, you might probably, some of the things that you do have like 95 dev dependencies because of Webpack and stuff and ESLint and things. Do you want a recommendation engine for your NPM? No, no, no. no. I think it'd be cool if it grouped them by, like, uh, if it grouped them by actual dependencies, dev dependencies, and then within the dev dependencies, like, these are all the things that are related to Babel, including, like, Babel... Uh, like subcategories? Do you really need that, though? I might want that because sometimes I have, like, a bunch of ESLint packages and, you know, I don't really know, like, what... Um, yes, lent rules are being overridden or like what's doing that. And sometimes it'd be nice to know like the, the sub dependencies of other dependencies. Like if instead of installing uh, yes, lint, you install XO, Sender Soros's library for managing like a clean way to do uh, yes, lint configs. You don't even know what version of yes, lint it's including because it's a dev dependency or a dependency of XO. So it's like, oh, XO version blah. But it'd be cool to be able to say like this is effectively all the things that are that are making your ESLint config work. Yeah, I think these things a, that are making Babel work. Yeah, that'd be a neat tool. It is kind of hard to figure out what what those things are doing sometimes. Like you could have something that's you have like five things that all say ESLint plugin. You yeah, don't but they're really probably know what they're doing. Maybe you're using one. Maybe you you're also, not using one. Yeah. Maybe you have a custom config that's using one package, but then like the other one that you don't think is being used is actually depends on the other well, one. It be there's, nice a, to there's a whole tree and this whole graph. So you're right the about thing that. are what are graphs best utilized, best visualized with GUIs. So what do you have a GUI for to create a listicle? The problem. This, the thing with that, that makes this funny is that's that's the same list that's in your package JSON. It is. But, if you have a GUI on it with graphs, then it becomes more useful. But the, in terms of the complexity of the graphs, like like you're talking about, each one of these packages has. Hundreds. You ever done NPM LS? Of other, of yeah, other it packages. <laughs> it can, I mean, it can do it, but I don't know how helpful Maybe, a graph of those, like, 
Maybe it only goes down one level because with NPM, you can say depth one and it'll tell you the top level package is depth two. It'll tell you one level deep. That's true. It's all there in NPM and it's all there in the package JSON. All you got to do is GUIFY it. That's true. Made up a word. That's true. So if you ever wanted to GUI your package JSON so you could understand it better or do something, then Guppy is the package for you. I could see a use for it if it if it did what I was just saying, where it kind of grouped common things. Not everything in the world, just common things. Babel, ESLint. Like React, those kind of things. It's, it a, just, it's a slippery slope. It's a slippery mm, slope. It's a slippery slope. Mm, it, I don't know. You're going to go down uh, a path of of anger. Well, then why are you even making it? Because I don't need it. I don't need a GUI from my this top is, level this package. Is very, this is very simple. This is very straightforward. It's just this is what's in your package. I don't, JSON. I don't need That's that. That's all it is. I don't need That's that. That's all it is. The the path to heartache is the other way of trying well, to get more deeper than this. I don't need what's there. So anyway, we'll moving we'll on. See. Next item. React testing library. I am excited that this is on this list. Mm-hmm. I literally just played with this earlier today. So React testing library is a unit testing library uh, released by one Mr. Kent C. Dobbs, mm-hmm. who we all know and love. Uh, this is actually a sub-library of a handful of different libraries that he's been building around unit testing, mm-hmm. around unit testing different frameworks, and this is the React-specific one. Um, this has a very different paradigm to unit testing than enzyme than enzyme does. Mm-hmm. Uh, this he, he has a whole document that uh, yeah talks enzyme about the deals with shallow this. mounting and head and like yes. deep mounting. This and all has stuff. much more of a focus. Uh, he he writes in the guidelines about focusing on testing the way that users use your app. So instead of having these theoretical like shallows or like these very kind of technical definitions of what parts of your code are actually running. Mm-hmm. His assertion and uh, expectation libraries are built around how does the user actually experience your app? Hmm. So instead of just straight shallow mounting, like this is a perfect example right here, const get by text, the way that you render the actual app or render the actual component is not just render the component and then like poke it to see what's in it. It's literally saying, give me the text, give me just the text of this rendered component. Now, if you're any... If, you, if you've done any unit testing, you know how often you're going, I need to make sure this text is coming through correctly. I need to make sure that this piece of content is matching the data source I have over here. Mm-hmm. Boom, straight line to do that unit testing right here. So, um, I mean, to be fair to Enzyme, it has that stuff too. It's Enzyme just through has an assertion. It too, but it's just, it's a different, it's just a different paradigm. It's just a different way of thinking about it's how to do unit testing. It's more complicated because you're still, when you shallow mount a component, what you get back is the same thing. And then you have to run, you get essentially an enzyme object that you can then use their assertions against. And you can say, expect that shallow mounted component, whatever that value is, to have text blah. Yeah. At div level blah. Yeah. But this is like, this slightly is a, smarter. a bit more straightforward. It's, yeah, more, it's more, I would say, I've, the, what I've read is that enzyme is designed to text code. React testing library is designed to text or test. Uh, like the app, like the actual mm-hmm. experience of the app. So yeah, it, and it's, I just, in, it's kind of more of an outside in, I guess, or a higher level. It's not really worried about like the inner workings of what's going on in a component or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of times you would argue like if you were going to, if you were writing React components really well, which Kent Dodds is like a whole spiel about this. If you're writing components really well, then your view components are just view components. They're just view. They're just and dumb wrappers around utilities and doing. utility components yep. that do smart things with data. And like, if you're writing any kind of like business logic that's not related to how it's presented visually within a React component, you're probably doing something wrong. You're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, that should be so, its own thing. If you were writing like a calculator, 
then you would probably have all the things that do the calculations inside of utility libraries. Those should be a separate, those should be each kind of a separate importable thing. Yeah, and, and they're probably unit tested with something else. Yes. Or Jasmine, or like Jasmine or Jest or something like that. Yep. Your React components are really just presentation layers and they should be tested accordingly. One thing I will shout out to him that he does have that is really good and I have, uh, I have. he has an entire course on React testing. It's kind of expensive, but it's totally worth yes, it. Yes, he does. He has, uh, he has a bunch of courses. Well, the uh, one specifically is, is JavaScript testing. It's testingjavascript.com, I believe it is. Oh. And it's like a $300 course, I believe. Uh, and it's not like extremely long, but he like distilled all the information that he takes to his uh, workshops and stuff that he does about testing and distilled it into like an eight-hour course that's very like dense. That's pretty amazing though. Yeah, he's really good. That, I, that sounds to me like it's worth every penny. Yeah, if you're doing a lot of uh, if you're doing a lot of testing in life, like if your business requires unit testing of your React components, I would definitely watch his course because he's kind of like besides the enzyme guys, which is all of Airbnb and all that, they all worked on that and they spent a lot of time on it. So I wouldn't discredit enzyme for what it's for, but if you're just like a regular old dev who's just building a an app and you're building it really quickly, but you do want to like create unit testing just so you can know how to do it or whatever. And even if you're a big organization that's doing unit testing of React, obviously you can use his libraries. I would definitely recommend using his course, watching his course to learn how to best test React components. And so you don't waste your time testing a lot of stuff you don't need to. Because like a lot of times you'll just, with enzyme days, you would like pass props to a component and you would say like, expect that prop is defined or becomes this state value. Yeah, and very, like, like very not, low level crap where yeah. it's like, well, of course it did what it was supposed to do. What you really need to test is like, hey, did the effective render text have the thing that came from the prop? That's what you yes. need to do. Does yes. it actually make it to the markup? Did my prop come through? And not even just testing, did the prop come through? It's, did it get rendered in the way that I am expecting it to be rendered? Yeah. Right? So those, it's a very subtle distinction of how to think about the test, but it's very important. And that distinction is kind of the way that I explain the difference between something like Enzyme mm-hmm. and this library. So that's, yeah. uh, th- that's a really good one. Uh, the docs are really good. I, I literally was doing this earlier today and uh, I liked what I saw. So worth checking out there. Moving on. Number eight. I've never heard this before, Greg. What is this? Oh, it's like... React developer tools? What's Rocked that? Rocked tools? Tools? The one... So this is on here because, again, I think the same reason... A lot there's some people that may have used Create React app and used React, but never knew there's a Chrome extension. Yes. Actually, so, that's a very good point. It took me probably I didn't know that there was a React extension till probably I'm gonna say a year after I started writing React. So the one the one thing about the the So I knew about the React because I like to find I love tools. So I like to find things that make my life easier. Whenever I'm using anything, I always try to find if there's like a tool or a Chrome extension or something that makes my life better. Um, so I found the React dev tools early on and had them, but I didn't really find like, there's there obviously are uses for it because you can see the component structure, you can see the props, you can see what states defined in every component and it creates a tree of components, right? But there's one of the big problems of React, and I think we've talked about it before, is that there's tons of inner uh, components, like wrapping components. There's lots of divs between divs between divs. And the old version of React dev tools would show you all those divs. Yes, and you would get indented off the frame. Yes. The version of React DevTools that is coming out in like a week or two that's in beta removes the interstitial unnecessary wrapping components from the view. I thought it already came out. 
It was well. It was out. It was in the news this week. As of this recording, it's probably out. Okay. Well, yeah. I don't know time. So I read about it earlier in the week, or like maybe on Friday, or it was in the JavaScript Weekly or React Weekly of last week. Yes. And they were like, "Oh, it's beta." And the way Facebook works, once it's beta, it's basically out the next day. So who knows? I don't know why they beta things. But anyways, yeah, the new one removes the interstitial unnecessary components. And if you don't know, another side note: if you don't know about. what are they actually called? Um, the fragments? Fragments. If you don't know about fragments, go look them up. You can actually do fragments now with just a param with no name. They're amazing. If you need to just like group something and create- You mean like, the angle brackets with no name? Yeah, yeah whatever. Whatever yeah, those things are. They're, they used to have to do react.fragment and some people still think you do. Oh, the- um, They're the same thing. No, that was a, there was a, I'm pretty sure it was a Babel thing that they had, mm, they had to wait maybe. for. So yes, you're right. You can actually do- uh, Invisible wrapper. So you can actually, your mm-hmm. React components have to have one base wrapping whatever div. So you can use the empty angle bracket tag to do that. But React is smart in that it it uses that to wrap the component, but it will actually take that tag out of the flow of the DOM mm-hmm. when it renders, Amazing. which is beautiful, which is great because one, it doesn't mess up your styling because we all know how much you love CSS, Greg. And having extraneous devs in there will mess up your CSS. Mm-hmm. Trust and Div, child, 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 child. Oh, there's the one I oh, want. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Descendant selector, real class. Oh, div. There it is. In, 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 in. Oh, there. That's the one I wanted. A pref mm-hmm. span. Div. You're like four. In, you're like p. <laughs> six Jack. feet off the edge of the page because you've indented in four. Four spaces for every single one of those children. So now you've literally you're you're two and a half feet off the side of the screen. Mm-hmm. Quick anyway. hot hot question: Can What's you that? have a P as a descendant of an anchor in HTML? He has a descendant of an anchor. You should be, but I actually ran into that today as well because it depends on what you're passing to it. I think you can, especially in React. You you should be able to. You should be able to. The only place that you get in trouble is. If you're using the A tag, but you're not actually using it as a link, like if you don't provide a ref, mm-hmm. then uh, you are not doing well for the accessibility part. Like uh, JSX Ally will slap you on the hand for that one. Yeah, a lot of the, the a lot of the, J, the those things will Ally um, stuff will. But if you have like a weird structure of like nesting things like A tags and buttons, A tags and buttons, because those both those can be used for either or. You have a weird thing where you're nesting those and you're not passing the rest correctly, then you will get you'll get slapped by your. I always love those people watcher. that put like a, they'll put like because you know how you can you can wrap it pretty much anything in an anchor and make it clickable, but there's those people that will wrap a, um like an like a button they'll put like a div inside of a button and you're like what are you doing and they put the div make the they'll put an on click handle on the div inside the button instead of putting it on the button oh yeah those are great I love those. oh the best one and then they'll put it inside of a form and speaking like of accessibility button. the best thing you could possibly do for accessibility Greg let me tell you yeah take a plain div yeah and put an on click on it oof love it just a straight up div just no 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 nah. I mean React will complain around around the corner well, React actually it's not even Ally that'll complain React will actually complain about that React. Pretty sure it will complain. I think it just warns you. Well, it complains. Warning complaints. If you, depending on how strict you've set up your ESLint. No, no ESLint rules. I think React will actually complain if you put a on-click on a non It'll complain, but you can actually set your ESLint rules to where it will error out. Not even with ESLint. 
React itself will say you've added a non-click to a non-interactive component. I'm saying is it, there's a difference between a warning and an error. I think it just warn. I think React will just warn you. It won't actually no, that's break. That's the same thing build. as ESLint. <laughs> no, ESLint will actually break. No, it, it will if it's an error, but it won't if it's a warning. I don't know. That's a weird one. React can throw an error too. They have an internal thing that's similar to ESLint where they can throw errors for like things like if you haven't if you don't have a key on a list on a list element that's iterated. That's the same thing. It'll warn yeah. you. Yeah, that's true. They have a, they have like a built-in ESLint for like core things that are super ness. Yeah. So what we've learned from the React developer tools: one, use fragments; two, use your button slash a tag slash onclick handlers correctly for accessibility for people who want to read well, just, your site. You know, take away from that, read the accessibility rules. You make read websites. the accessibility rules, right? And if you, this is totally on a side note. If you don't think accessibility is important, as Domino's. It's literally you will get sued. Ask Domino's how important accessibility is. They're about to lose a very, very large lawsuit brought by one very hungry blind man. Wants his pizza. Wants his pizza. And not only are they spending more money to fight this lawsuit than it would have been to just fix the site, they're earning themselves a lot of bad press. People who aren't fully sighted like you and I are want to use your website. They want to eat pizza. They want to learn about React. They want to watch YouTube videos. So think about it when you're doing that. Putting that out there. It is tough though, because a lot of times you're just trying to get your thing done, and then on top of that, you have to. It's add true. It. But that's where it's good. You just just add the add the ESLint ally things, and it'll help you because it'll tell you things that are blatantly like, "Come on, man." Yeah. What are you doing? What on, are you doing? On like, click on a span. What are you doing? Yeah. Or like, you don't have an alt tag on this image. How are they going to know what the image is? They, they can't see. <laughs> they don't know that it's a picture of a puppy. And. The things that it's telling you make perfect sense. It's not like they're asking for insane things. Yeah. They're like, hey, you put an A tag here. This isn't an A tag. What yeah. are you doing? Yeah, it's not like it's not like those SEO rules are like, you put an H2 below an H1. What H1, are you H2, doing? H2, H2 below H1. Oh, my God. They are not arbitrary rules. It's not those stupid for... things that people do to try to get you search indexed better, which doesn't do anything. Not anymore, it doesn't. No, those people. Not anymore. Moving on. Mm-hmm. Number nine on the list. Bit. Yeah, this looked cool when I looked at it's it. It's just called Bit. Tell, tell us more about this, Greg. So it's like a, it's basically a registry of components that you can pull into apps. Like it'll have things like, this thing's moving very, very quickly. It's a very fast GIF, but it will have like, um, it has like little components like uh, toggle buttons and stuff that you can download and you can essentially install them into your app and it'll like, I don't know how it, I think there's like a way that it's like an NPM registry almost where it'll keep track of bit components within your app and it'll essentially like download the source code or reference it in some way. The, the interesting thing about it is that it has a pricing tab. It is a paid service too that oh, you can use to host your own private repo of bits. I guess what they call them. Oh. So you can like create, if you were, if you were going like, see, I don't really know. Is this an alternative to like NPM private repos? No, it's like, it's almost like if instead of putting, instead of your organization creating a carousel for your organization and then putting that on NPM under at org slash carousel for your internal use, you could just put it on a bit registry and it's like a little piece of code. So it's almost like a, it's sort of like a snippet repository where you can put like little components on. The installation step is still confusing me a little bit, but I... If they can make that part work with like my existing npm structure, but my- I don't. What, they, what I don't think that they do is they don't just like add a line to your npm 
or your package JSON. I think yeah, there's another way of doing it. If it's a private repo, um, you have to have some sort of uh, key that's issued to you by the repo owner. Mm-hmm. And you keep I that think they in, handle in MRC. Maybe they, they have some sort of setup for that. It seems I think like they that's handle the that stuff. It. But the idea is that you can you can either I think they have a free version where you can just go download bits. Yeah, this is neat. This is almost can, like a like a dribble for code. Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. Probably better it's than the way a, I explained it. It's a, like a nice little portfolio. You can pull down things that look interesting. They have a pricing, so yeah. they are uh you know, making making a business out I think of it. So I think they do themselves. that for organizations that are big enough that need it. But one of the things that I find interesting about this is I don't think NPM is the place that you should put single components. Like, mm, yeah, like a drop down. Like, I don't really know if that should be muddling NPM. NPM should just, in my opinion, like it should just be actual libraries that do things. I mean, and if you have like a little tiny widget, you just put it on bit. But everything, everything in NPM is dependent on under the package, though. So like yeah. a a library could be a combination of hard coded code and a set of dependencies of other packages, which this seems like a, the place for that level. Well, what I packages. meant is like I just think that my personal opinion, I've always found that npm is a difficult place to find and discover components. Yes, discoverability is difficult. Not on... even discoverability of like life. Like you can go. Usually, I use Google to search npm. Because I think they do a better job of indexing everything, obviously. And I just search for like, you know, what is the best library that handles case X? Like, I don't know. Moment or date. Like, well, you know, I'm dealing with dates. Like, what's the best way to deal with time zones in JavaScript? And it'll be like moment time zone, but probably will show up. And then, but they'll also probably be date functions and you can read about them. And the only way to tell which one's any good is actually pull them down and bang your head against them. Yeah, or looking at the GitHub issues, looking at what people say, looking at blogs, looking at Medium, looking at stuff on Dev.2, whatever. That part is hard. It takes time. It takes time. But the thing is, when you're looking at things on NPM, if you didn't know, if you were just to like search for time zones, you're relying on NPM's ability to do search to say that like space, time, date functions, and moment are in the same category. And then it'll show you those three potentially, or it won't. I don't know. But that makes perfect sense because those are the kind of things that belong on NPM. But like little tiny widgets of like some person's personal opinion about how a like a, a radio should work or a dropdown should work, maybe don't need to be there. But something like React Dropdown or React Drop Zone, like some of those really big, uh, like and really integral, like fundamental React components, potentially. But I think this is better for like someone who's used react drop zone to like create some draggable thing or like some drag and drop file component that looks a certain way. Kind of like your, your example of dribble is a really good way of putting it. Albert's particular take on how a drop down should look, you know, as a combination of CSS and JavaScript that uses react drop down. And then it's like that particular drop down. If you want to pull that drop down whole sale, you can, you know, or cause like right now, you know, the little, the little um, night and day toggle that's on my personal website I got. I found that on a. I think it was on a code pen somewhere. Yeah. And yeah. this would have been the perfect place to just download that thing. Yeah. This is. Uh, I agree with you that this the visual element of this is actually a really good thing because sometimes you just need to you need an example of what is a better way to do a drop down. Yeah. And if what someone is a doesn't better way to do a radio button. The other or like anything like that. The other thing that's really good is it, it really interesting about npm is if somebody doesn't include an image in their npm readme. It doesn't show up on NPM. 
Oh, you if, want to have an yeah. image of if the component. You, if, if you are publishing a package on NPM where I need to see what it looks like and you don't have an image, I'm not using your package. Well, okay, but what about this? This probably has a thing that's similar to CodePen in it where it just renders the components for that. you. Yeah. Directly oh, no, in the I've, view. I've, yeah. I don't waste my time. Like, uh, this comes up a lot aside. This comes up a lot on Visual Studio Code as well um, when I'm looking for new themes because I'm an addict. I need new themes in my arm every single day. Uh, a lot of times these people who publish these themes don't have a picture of what the theme looks like Get on their information. Get out of here. I'm not touching that. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not bothering with that. What if it's the best theme ever and you don't even know? I'm never going to know. What if you didn't know? What if it was the best theme? doesn't matter. What if the I don't know. Like, well, the other thing the is- The tree that fell in the forest didn't make a sound. Well, the other I don't thing know. is if the, if the person actually did build like a really good theme, then they're going to take pride in how it looks and they're going to be like, hmm, I wonder what I should upload with this Visual Studio thing. Hmm. Oh, an image of it. Yeah. Or at least the color palette. Some kind of image. Yeah. Some people also have broken image links. Well, then that just means that it well, removed the like CDN link. Pay for your imager or whatever it is that you host it on. I don't, I don't no, know. I don't want to pay for imager. Like, it Imago? It's like, how are you going to convince someone to download something that is visual at its core? What if it was like a fleeting thing? They, like. built, they built a theme... They were like, oh, this is so cool. They put it all up there. They added it. They added the image. They put it on whatever you just said, Imager. 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 And then they and then they like forgot about it and they don't use it anymore. Well, if you forgot about it, then I forgot about it. How's that? But Let's, it could still be the best theme ever. Tree. What about the guy who made 1984? Doesn't that make one, a sound. That one time might uh does not. That make. might lose its image one day. And then you're gonna be like, oh, no one's gonna know that it's good. Does not make a sound. 1984 made a sound. That was a great theme. Doesn't make a sound. They don't have it on IntelliJ. It's annoying. Moving on. Gotta keep going on this list. We're not even halfway down this list. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's work uh, hard, man. Let's play, let's um let's skip down a little bit. Skip Wait, no, we'll bit. just mention them really quick. Storybook. If you don't know what Storybook is, it is a it is a library that allows you to add components to a visual guide that your other team members, if you're a very big team of designers and developers, they can communicate about how the components look. And it has this concept called knobs where you can actually manipulate things in it. Like you can say, you know, if this component has like props and well, th this one's pretty interesting. If your component has props and you wanted to change the size of something, you can create a knob that manipulates the size. Yeah. It's, it's pretty a cool. very cool tool for communicating design. It's a, it's a cool little sandbox. And documentation. It's a visual sandbox for React components. Another thing to help you. It's a documentation things. slash visual sandbox. Thing. Yes, that's true. Yes. Number 11, React site. I don't know what this is. What is this? It lets you visualize your React apps by presenting you a live component hierarchy tree of your entire app. It supports React Router, Redux, as well as Fiber. So it basically, it's, we're going to, this is one we can skip. It basically takes your entire app and creates like a visual representation of all the components that are within it. I don't know. Run it and see what happens. Again, I, no picture of how it actually works. There's a picture of the settings. It's very it's a important. A picture of the setting they have to change, but not how it works. I don't know about that one. Moving on, number 12, React Cosmos. That sounds cool. What is this? I don't know what this is. I think you'd have to read about it. I I read the list of what it does, and I'm like, okay, that's called React. But basically, it... Uh, under any combination of process context, state, market, react, dependency, C, app, state, evolve. I'm sure it's cool, but it sounds to me like React. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you can do these things without... I'm sure it tool. has a, I'm sure it has a value. The mocking external dependencies could be interesting depending on how it caches API responses and how it handles the local storage. But I feel like there are other tools other ways of doing this and also other ways of not using any tools to do the same thing. So moving on here. Ooh, this one's a good one. Code Sandbox. 
Greg, do you, have you used Code in Sandbox? I feel like this is a pretty big one. I have a sandbox list. for Code. It's in my brain. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I run Code in my brain. Yeah, it's full of, full of dirt. Full of dirt. <laughs> Why is there dirt in my brain? That's weird. It's a sandbox. It's a sandbox. So Code oh, Sandbox. See, there is dirt in my brain. I didn't get the, I didn't get the reference. Code Sandbox is similar to CodePen, if you've ever yeah. used that. It's so kind why of an nice interactive little tool. Code Sandbox, I think, has some better tooling around the actual compiling and executing of the code. So then they built a whole other tool because it has a little bit better of a change on something? I want to say this is a Google there's product. There's so many of them. There's CodePen, there's Code Sandbox, there's Code... Well, I don't know, there's like 14 of these things. Well, we were talking earlier. I feel like I've seen Code Sandbox a lot in documentation for large... React well, projects. It says uh, it's no. It, it says it's they've now more. expanded to starter templates from libraries like Vue and Angular. If it was if it was Google, it would have already had Angular. That's how you know. If it started with React, it's probably not Google. Maybe I'm not really sure, but uh, one place I have seen this a lot is that the Material React library that Google puts out um, uses this as their little example sandbox tool, and I found it really helpful when I was reading those documentations hmm. uh, for that. It looks very uh, it looks like a code editor tab in your browser. I mean, it has your files on the left. It's got your code in the middle. And it's got a little thing that renders your thing on the right. Why does have an editor? It's got to be on the website. I it, mean, I guess it, I, it is if, a, it, it's probably it's probably an Electron app that's embedded into the thing. I mean, if I am going to go to a website and try to screw with someone's example, I would love it to be at least in the format that it is on a... That's one thing. What's the other one that... Uh, is really common that has the three boxes where it has like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. That's CodePen. I hate that one. I mean, I like it, but I hate that one because it's not how you write code. It's like, and then the windows get all to be resized and then you never, if you look at the little screen, weird. you never have the place to put the thing that's rendering. But remember, it's not there to be your primary code editor. It's there to be a thing. Yeah, to build but if they built build one that was like a code editor that you could build a snippet out of and it had a little project there, it's easier to understand. So that's maybe true. this one's cool. I don't know. I should check it out. Yeah, so... Uh, Code Sandbox, uh, kind of a similar vein of CodePen, if you've used that, um, allows you to work with different pieces of React. They have uh, these templates that actually look kind of cool now, too. These, a couple of these look really interesting. The ones in the example look really interesting. Material UI layout, you've got Saber, Nuxt, Svelte. Svelte is the new thing. I've heard of the Svelte. So hot right now, Svelte. Yeah, I mean, it's like all the things that React isn't. All the things that React is. That's a perfect way to put that. All right, moving moving to the next one here. Number 14, React Bits. React it is bits. a collection of React patterns, techniques, tips, and tricks, all written in an online document-like format where you can quickly access different design patterns and techniques, anti-patterns, styling, UX variations, and other helpful React material all in the same tab. So this is I actually like do a... like this because I I always find that like there's documentation on things that is too wordy. And then there's documentation that just gets straight to the point. And you're like, I know that what I need to know about is dependency injection. Like that is the thing I want to know how to do in React. But you'll spend like 12 years Googling what dependency injection is, see a whole bunch of stuff about PHP and Java, and then never get to the point where you're like, how do I do that in React? Yeah, this is actually, this is nice. So it's very easy to be like, oh, that's just a list of lists. But the maintainer of this React Bits list has actually put this into a Git book format which if you don't know, Gitbook is a format that GitHub came out with uh, along with a kind of a markdown editor that's designed to allow you to really easily write things like technical documentation or novels even, or books in this format. It gives you all the linking with your table of contents, gives you little headers, 
kind of move hmm. all the way through it. You can page through it, all kinds of stuff. So this is really neat that they, he was able to put this. Well, look, there's all the different ways format. you can do conditional JSX. I argued with a friend of ours about that. You can either just type and, or you can do ternaries. Do you know that? You can just do value and, and yep. component. I did a, I did a, or I did a double pipe today mm-hmm. where I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of do a, a, an example of what you're talking about. I did a, I wanted to check and see if it was, I, I did kind of a, a quick and dirty, I don't want to call it a theme provider, but that it's kind of doing the same thing where you're passing it, the information it should be using for the styles, but I wanted it to be conditional. So I wanted to have like, if you have one, then use that. If not, then use this. And I use a double pipe for that. Ah. Actually, it worked perfectly. It worked great. It saved me a line of code and I think it logically works. So that's a really good way. That's the kind of thing that you would look up on a list like this, in a book like this. And it would be much easier to find it here than trying to Google it or trying to take through all the different mm-hmm. stack overflows. Like, oh, how do I choose through between these two different things when I want one and not the other. Like it would be very hard to verbalize the actual question that you're asking in that mm-hmm. scenario. So go down to feature flags. I want to see what it looks like. Ooh, feature flags. Feature flags are good. Oh, wait, it was up there. It was the one that was at the very bottom of the list. Right there. How do they recommend you do that? This is a good question because I actually just worked on this in my office as well. Create feature flag container, and then it has a feature name, enabled component, disabled component. Oh, that is pretty smart. Wow. I think the way that we did this on ours was with a context provider, but this works too. Well, that's the context provider just provides the is enabled value and all the flags, but this is like a pattern yeah. for... But we were setting the flags with local storage. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. But the, well, I don't know that. I'm just saying, yeah, that makes sense. But this is like a pattern for how to actually com- create the components in neat ways. Pretty cool. I agree. Feature flags are good. Look that up. So hmm. that is... That's pretty cool. I'm going to read this later. Back bits. 9,923 yeah, stars. Yeah, there's a lot of good That's patterns solid. in there. There's a lot of patterns in that there. That is pretty and solid. And it's just patterns. That's pretty cool. Moving, uh, moving on down this list. This one is the one you mentioned earlier. Highlight mm-hmm. updates. Mm-hmm. This it's pretty cool. pretty neat. The, I actually the, used this to debug some really complicated forms once on a really big project. And... It was nice because with Formic, there's a context provider on the parent component. And every single time we change a property in a component, it will update the Formic component. And if you have something in there in the lower part of the tree that gets screwed up, like maybe something that has a component did update chain. You have like dependent fields. You have like, well, because forms, I'm sorry, people, but forms are not always so simple where it's like, a container and then a bunch of fields. No, dependent fields. There could be other stuff. Fields. There could be like entire components. Well, there yeah. could be entire components and the headings and you, each of the, like if you have like a form that's separated into sections and then one of the sections is like an entire React component of some kind. Yep. I don't know what it would be, like maybe a tab provider or something. It's ba- and it's based on where the things you checked up, up yeah. like 20 Who pages knows? up higher. Yeah. It's Who knows? Hard. That can happen. And the, all the things are related. And the way that it happens is if you change an input, Formic will trigger a change to the context provider, which will trigger a change to the form. And then you can kind of see that when you change one field, all the components re-render. Yes. And it's potentially that maybe in one of those components, you want to add a React memo to it and say, only re-render me if this input value changes. Yes. And you can visualize that. Yes. This, uh, the little visualization that's provided in this article shows a little bit better than we can explain about how this works. It highlights different fields in a form 
based on if you click on them or if you type on them, and it changes colors, so you know exactly what's happening. And you, so. the colors are related, so you know what field caught. If you can see it fast enough. Which ones are tied to each other? The ones that are yeah. green are the ones that are re-rendered because the green changed. Yeah, yeah. So this it's a is very. I've used a this tool. a lot. Like, see, even the submit button is re-rendering. You may not even know that. Why does the submit know. button got to remember? You just should component update. No. No, because you want to do. Uh, sometimes you want to limit people. That's that. That's like a soft. Uh, yeah, you disable it. Disable. Yeah. I know, but maybe maybe you did come, should component update. No, unless the should component should input be disabled is true or false or changes. You know. Performance. Now, now you have a tool. Performance. That helps you. My friend. Now it helps Performance. You. Moving on down the list. React Diff Viewer. I've never seen this before. What is this? It's a simple and beautiful text diff viewer made with Diff and React. This support features like split view, inline view, word diff, highline highlight, etc. This can be useful if you were trying to embed this feature into your notes. Ahem, boost note. And customize it to be more tailored for your app. Theme colors, documentation, combination, storybook, presentation, etc. So like if you were doing like a... A, like a like a website that has code and you're trying to show the difference between pieces of code, you can actually use this as a component. I don't know why this one needs to be in this list, but it's a component that's essentially a diff viewer. Like a, it'll show you the difference between two files and you can style it. It's kind of like um, Highlight.js where you can highlight markup for your blog, but you can actually have a difference between two pieces of code. One place where I've seen an interesting use case of this is in uh, Danny Boy's blog, in Dan Abramov's blog. His blog has uh, not a diff viewer, but he's built inside of his highlight or his um, Prisma or Prismatic. I don't know where the heck the thing is that does the, the code highlighting. He's built a thing that shows you the files as they change. Like the additions are highlighted as he shows you new examples in like a pink. And you can see the line he's added. Is he just highlighting the individual lines in the subsequent code blocks? He might be like annotating them some way in his, his uh, markdown. That sounds about right. Because... Yeah, that's actually a really cool. That's a feature. use case where you'd see it, but they're not. It's not side by side, but it's like as he adds, as he shows you, like I'm going to change this component in this yeah, way. Yeah, you see the progress. You see the lines highlighted yeah. in pink. Yeah, that's a really cool feature. He does some signature. Cool his there. signature theme color. Yeah, um, I think you're right that most people have some sort of differ that they use. I know that again, VS Code as a VS Code user, uh, there's a really good one built in there. If you're a got a Sublime one. user, they have an entire separate app called Sublime Merge now. That's like part of the app. That's essentially its own thing. Hmm. Uh, Never used it. If you're a Git Kraken user, I really, really like the differ. Yeah, there's Git Kraken. Um, that's probably my favorite. Like my favorite is the one, one in IntelliJ. It's amazing. IntelliJ one is really good as well. So there's there's a lot of ways to skin that cat. Differs are definitely something that you need. Uh, and if you don't think you need them, you have not run into a merge conflict yet in your life. So, oh, but yeah, re report back when you uh, when you when you run into that one. When you run into a merge conflict between two files, that's one thing. But I used to do a lot of like deployment management, and I would have to know if like an entire folder was different. Yes. So I still have Kaleidoscope, even though I don't think Black Pixel even maintains it anymore. No, we looked them up the other day, remember, and they yeah, were like, they had been absorbed into another company. So, but it still works, and as long as it doesn't break, I'm going to keep using it. As and long as it Kaleidoscope break. is pretty cool, and it still works. Yes, I've been in the situation where I have done a git pull, origin whatever, and literally every single file that comes back gives me a conflict. So that's those, because those someone fun. that's because someone went in there and changed all the spaces. Yeah, those are fun. Love those, those are people. fun. And by fun, I mean not fun at all. And those are the times where you need differs and things that give you nice ways of solving those things. So, uh, rec differ. 
It's mainly for, like I don't know why you would have that because it's actually for like, I guess it's worth looking at. It's I for mean, websites. I don't know why it's in this list because it's like this list is all about things that help you make React code better, but then it's a component that is a diff tool. So that's useful if you're like, if you need a diff tool in your website. Yeah. But you're I, not, I'm, unless it runs, as unless it's like an Electron library that runs locally and you pass it to file names or something and it gives you a diff. I don't know. That's still an extra step. I would, I would recommend before. That's actually a really good idea. You should take that tool and then put it in an Electron app and then be able to provide CSS themes to your diff tool. Pretty sure that's what Kraken is. Kraken doesn't allow you to define themes for it. I think One, it's, it has a good theme. I think you can actually provide themes to it because it's Electron. It's I like want you said, it's Electron. Well, I want a theme Kraken because I don't really like the way it looks. Sorry. Sorry, get cracking. Get cracking. Get in touch with us. Just make it. Just make a dark one. Well, they fine. have a dark one, but make one that's not like blue dark. I know it's your colors, but make. I like the dark one. I, like I the want dark one. one you lot. know what they should do? They great. should add one where they have a theming library, and then they just include like the common themes. Like I might like Monokai and my differ. And we my, all know how much you love Monokai. You might like it inside of my Git tool. I don't know. I don't like it in my editor, but maybe it would look cool as the UI of a you know whatever. I think that there is a case to be made that it should match whatever's in your editor because that's how you that's read That's exactly code. how IntelliJ works. Makes sense. Makes sense. But I mean, the one in VS Code is like that too. It actually opens up a new window in your actual editor. So it's worth looking out. Moving on down the list. We're almost to the end here. What's this one? You were, you were wooing it on about this one. I was very intrigued by this one. So this is number 21 mm. on the list. This is Proton Native. Yeah. Just looking at the name of this, this makes me think of the Proton framework that Steam is building that allows you to run any game on any platform. But I don't think that's what this is. Because I think alternative that's somebody, to Electron. I think somebody was trying to be clever around Electron. Like, huh, Electron, Proton, huh, that's funny. It's funny. Not it's a nerd. science. Nerd. It's science. They're like next to each other. Um, this... I opened up the repo. Let me well, it uses native repo. components, so there's no more Electron components. So it's essentially turning React Native components directly into... Into Electron. Not Electron, into actual native components. That's what it says. Native components, no Electron. We're going to get some dope, dope, dope code editors out of this. Really, guys? Really? Really? This is interesting. I want to. I Two would like to ago. hear more about. What isn't there something like built exactly with Proton works. Native? Ooh, that's a great image. You'd go Google like built with Proton Native on the internet. In our history, so we can look at the other. If you casted the, the entire desktop, it would have maintained your history too. Look now, it broke because Chromecast doesn't work. Sorry, Google. Oh, there it is. Look at this question, though. Is it still, is Proton Native ready for production or is it still a hobby project? What is the answer? You're not scrolling fast enough. No answer. It's still open. It's referenced another one. But they're talking about That's how you can't issue. theme oh, it. So you can't theme it. So this is pretty far behind then. Wow. Uh, but it's interesting, though. I think the the concept of it. So this is. Direct environment for cross-platform. So the idea that you're building native cross-platforms app, apps just in and of itself is a very difficult thing to do. Hence, hence Electron. But building React, like bringing React in on top of that just seems like it's exponentially more complicated. So I'm wondering this, what is under the hood well, that actually does this. It's rendering it to native components, but 
Why what are these native use, components? Why didn't they just use React Native? Because that's what it does. It renders native components. Well, it only it only targets the specific mobile operating system. No, you can React Native is a it targets the specific environments of like Android, iOS, whatever, but you there's an N plus one there. You can add as many environments as you want. React Native is like a it's a compiler that compiles to something, but you can actually make custom targets. But the target has to be able to interpret that. This is the thing where no, no, it um, builds to, you have to adapt it to the target. It will build markup that you can then, like it's an, that part of it is open source. You can add other targets. But the targets aren't. They're very hard to build, but you can do it. The idea with cross-platform is that it's very easy to think that cross-platform is the same thing as operating systems and it's not. Cross-platform is actually targeting specific toolkits that are designed to build native apps within specific operating systems. So it's like you could have like a Windows operating system and there are several different toolkits for building native apps for yeah. Windows. There's Mac Xamarin, is a good example. There's, there's GTK, there's, there's Qt, there's all these other ones. So when you're targeting a quote-unquote cross-platform app, you're not targeting Windows. You're targeting GTK, you're targeting Qt, you're targeting Xamarin, right? You can't target all three of those. Because those are all three of those are written in three different languages. So, but the thing is, React Native will, if there is a GTK, using your examples, target of React Native, it will compile to GTK components. But the question is, GTK components don't run on every platform. I know they don't even run on every version of. But React Native is, is not cross-platform. React Native is native. React that can compile to native components. Right. So the point of our conversation is any that native component, even with something as built out and kind of established as React Native is, building things that are cross-platform across all the different platforms without something like Electron is extremely difficult just by itself. But then adding this whole kind of, there's got to be some sort of translation that's coming from your React Native into whatever's going on well, here. Or the other thing is... And there's just that, not a lot of information about what the actual underneath is. So well, it's all kind of Electron is doing is compiling to a native or a, or a platform-specific frame. So they've built an app in Windows and an app in iOS and Android and whatever, Linux, Mac, whatever, that's a frame that holds web components. That's really all that Electron is, is it's rendering to web components. It's rendering, it's not even React Native, right? Re Electron is just regular React. Electron is just straight uh, JavaScript. And a lot, yeah. of it, a lot of it is just vanilla JavaScript. They're like, there aren't even... Yeah, well, uh, there just, are uh, translation layers that let you write React and they'll compile it to something that's... Yeah, it's called Babel. It'll just run, it'll just run ES5. I don't know if it's just... There's like stuff that's specific to but the Electron. Point, there's a whole build okay. system around Electron. But the point I'm trying to make is that all it's really doing is it's a native frame that can run a web app. So if all this thing is doing is creating a native frame that he's built an app for each target that understands how to run native components within it of a certain kind, then it's essentially faster than Electron but still using the same concepts that Electron uses. Yeah, it's just not is, using web. It's yeah. using native components. But native components is loosely termed because all it really is is it means that there's a native component that's running in their frame of the app that gets run on another s platform. Yeah, wouldn't it be funny if this was just a thing that you had to run inside of Electron? So he's, it's technically the truth that these components might not be Electron themselves, but you like need the Electron runtime in order to run them. I don't know. It just it seems like a lot of disparate pieces that should not work together in the way that it says that it does. And I don't know, it doesn't sound like it does. It says compatible with all normal Node.js packages. Like how do you build 
native apps with Node.js packages. It does the same thing that React Native does. It, React Native, when you run it on an iOS device, still uses the native li like Redux sagas will still run or Redux will still run in a React Native app, but the views themselves are actually running natively. So it like runs the job. I don't know how the heck it does it, but it runs that's, the JavaScript. That's the, question, that's the biggest question in but my mind. Already, like, how does it do all this stuff? It's the, it's, React Native already does it. So I mean, obviously, but it's you can capable. style. You can style React Native. This says you can't style it. Yeah, yet. but that's because they've built an entire. Facebook spent a ton of time building, like a a div or a li ul list situation gets built into a iOS collection view. Like they've done this work to translate the components to native components. But I don't really think that something else can just do it magically. Anyways. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. I'm gonna. Keep an eye on that one because mm -hmm. that is the future that I think we're all going to. Where I think we're all going to matter. web components. Everything is going to get rendered by V8 and it's going to be native. Well, it's all the same. And everything's just going to be a browser. I think we're saying the same thing. And so we're not going to be using that tool because we're just going to be building things in web components. Everything's going to be web, everything's going to be native. It'll be one. Yeah, editor. They'll, they'll, someone, it'll be and then someone will later will build the React library of 2028, and it'll be called Native Components, and it will just be web components that can compile to something like Electron that run natively with a V8 engine. It's all turtles, man. And all then... The, all the turtles. Every turtle. We'll have native... We'll make a new name for Electron. It'll be called Selectron. That's actually a fantastic name. <laughs> can, we make that, can we make that our uh, drop-down component library? <laughs> Selectron. It'll be That's called... That's actually amazing. It'll be called Quark.js. Quartz compiler. Oh, sorry, that's a thing too. Quark compiler. Um, core. What are, what are the other ones? Core are, UI. What are the other too. ones that are like smaller that make up the actual electrons? Oh, the Higgs boson. No, the no, 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 not, not, that, not that small. There are other ones oh. that are made up by the Higgs boson particles. There's like, there's quarks and then there's. there's uh, quarks and there's another one that's, I think, differently charged. <sighs> Jamie, put it on the screen. Put oh, on, man. put on science. science on the screen. Science. So that's the last one. Uh, the lot or well, the last one is Dev hints React JS cheat sheet, yeah, which so is the, a cheat sheet, which is probably useful. The author of this article has put together a cheat sheet uh, on his own. Oh, so you skipped one too. React, there was but. Awesome React, which those lists, the awesomes of the world, the Awesome React, Awesome whatever, those are really good. And did you know who built that? Who built that? Cindersaurus. The man. The, the myth, man. The, the open legend, sorcerer. Our favorite person i think yeah he built the uh he built the concept is, of the who? awesomes did this guy fork it no no he created a library for you to create awesome lists oh so you it's a certain way that you create a github repo with markdown and stuff oh, so and he it, built awesome he didn't build he built awesome, awesome oh, not okay. awesome react gotcha. he built the awesomes all of them very the framework that does all of them very interesting that's cool so this is a pretty good list i feel like there's been some good tools on here i feel like there's some eh, ones on here but I think going over lists like this is, is helpful to see what tools people are using. Maybe you'll find something that fills a hole a, in your lineup. I found a couple good ones in there. There's a couple ones I'd want to download. Yeah, so I think it's good. We'll have a link in the show I definitely show want notes. to do the prototyping one. I think that's cool. React yeah, Proto. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good one. Um, if I, I already ever, knew of a few of the other ones. If I ever get back into teaching, I think that's one I'll, I'll, I'll pull out of the hat to, to help explain. Because I remember the last time around, people were having trouble conceptualizing components on components on components. You know what you could do when you teach is you can have like a really teachable moment where you, um, you're like the, you're like, what's this facing ghost? Where you're using their hands to prototype. 
the components. You hold the keyboard, the mouse. They hold the keyboard and the mouse. And then you're sculpting the clay structure. Have you ever seen Ghost? I have seen Ghost. Um, you couldn't be more wrong about how to do that. I, okay, wrong is the, I wrong the is movie. Not, so I wrong is not the correct term for that. I'm sorry for saying that. Yeah, what I meant wrong. is what the typical kind of uh, teaching hacking idea is, is that you don't, you're not really actually good at teaching someone unless you can teach them without touching their keyboard. But I'm saying, isn't it so much cooler like Ghost where you sit behind them, help them sculpt the thing. Yeah, you do that without touching the keyboard. With React Proto. Because guess what that forces you to do? It forces you to actually explain to them what, what is happening. I'm not good doing. at explaining things. I'll never be a teacher. teaches them to actually type it out themselves. Import React from React. Seems like kind of excessive that you have to do that. Makes sense. Makes they should sense just change it to import React. Period. And then the default. They, you import. want all the React? Yeah, and it's just the index figures just out how every, to auto register every, it. Every React? No, no, no. The, audit, the index would figure out how to auto register it, and then any named import would be. You, at the beginning of our show, you literally said you should not import the entire Lodash package. No, I'm saying that the index would figure out how to code split it. Oh, anyway. So you, you don't want to deal with it. I don't want to type the React okay. word twice. Okay, that's cool. Or they could just auto register it in Webpack and do some more magic. Why doesn't it just auto register all your components? Why do you even have to register no, no, anything? Just, no, just that one. Okay. Greg, do you have a pick? I don't know. Do you? I mean, I, I have, have a cool one. I so, always have a pick. Yes, tell us about your pick. Yesterday or today was GamesCon 2019. I don't know when this is going to go out, so maybe you can be a little bit less date-specific and just tell us about the... Is GamesCon. it going to go out in 2020? <laughs> okay, if within the time when this thing goes out, there's this thing called GamesCon, which is like a convention that they have and they talk about all the video games that are coming out. Ooh. It's kind of like E3. Did you hear how E3 got hacked and all the user information got leaked? Yes. And they cool, didn't do cool, anything cool. about it. Cool, cool, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Cool yeah. beans. So um, anyways, it's kind of like E3, but I, I don't know where it is because I don't actually, even though I play games a lot, I don't always pay attention to industry stuff, but it's like an event where they do like the same stuff that they do at E3. And at that, they had a, a big like uh, Bungie was there and they had a big reveal for the next version of Destiny. It's called Shadowkeep and it looks really dope. And I wanted to do my pick, not necessarily because it's coming out and I'm not going to talk about what's in it because I know you don't care, but they did a really cool thing over the past couple weeks where they, the main guy who's like the game director for Bungie for Destiny, um, his name's Luke Smith. He wrote three blog articles explaining like every decision that they've made in the past like year and why um, they made those decisions and that they understood that the community like really didn't like or did like certain aspects of it. And they actually explained like their reasoning, where they went wrong, how it affected the studio, how um, having a, a season pass where they released three versions of the game every year or the last year really taxed the team and the team was overworked and was getting into burn. Yes, yeah, called crunch. The crunch time. They were getting into the crunch time and they didn't want their employees to be constantly crunched. And on top of that, they just separated from Activision. So they now are the developer and the publisher of Destiny. So they have more control over so it. So they have more control over it and they can explain why they are doing things and they're being super open about stuff and being like, this is why we did this, or this is why we did that, or this is where we're going. And Shadowkeep looks really, really cool. Um, 
you're going back to the moon if you play Destiny. That was where Destiny 1 started. Oh, man. Was on the moon. That's where if you ever saw, like, there was a little moment where, like, Destiny broke, like, 2% into pop culture and there was, like, the whole Moon's Haunted meme. I did not see the Moon's Haunted meme. It said 2%. You probably missed. You were on the other 98%. But there was, like, uh, there was a couple, like, news articles where, like, kind of like the whole um, attacking Area 51 thing. There was, like, oh, a, yeah. it hit the news where it was, like, some people are saying that the moon is haunted. And it was, like, a joke. It was actually because they, and the whole purpose of the whole theme behind Shadowkeep is that the season, the first season is called Season of the Undying. And there's like guardians and mobs that didn't that didn't die. Like Crota didn't die. Oh man, bring so them back. You gotta bring them back. So they say the moon's haunted and there's like all this stuff going on on the moon. And you gotta figure out what's going Try on. Try to figure it out. And it's the darkness is doing it. And it's I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm pretty excited about it because now that they're their own publisher and they're back to like they can make all the decisions, like, man, the game looks like even better than it was. Like Des they even admitted in the three part thing that like Destiny 2 started with like a really poor like start to destiny two and destiny one was kind of a mess too when it started. And by the time destiny one was done and they switched to destiny two, destiny two was intentionally designed to be a simpler game so they could bring on more players. And it never really took off because the game was then a little bit boring and it was really in the beginning, it was very hard to level up. So it was really difficult to play with your friends. Like it was you hard and boring. Well, you experienced that you played it for like a minute and I was like, Level 50 playing... Um, it was hard to catch up. Yeah, I was playing... Um, what was it called? I was playing the new, the newest expansion. I, my brain doesn't work. I was playing the newest expansion, and you were, like, in the very first levels, and I was, like, helping you kill stuff, and I had, like, every gun and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, and the, the new focus of this is to make it so that instead of you not being able to play with your friends, they're doing stuff every season to catch you up. So if you buy Shadowkeep and you haven't played Destiny for a while... The minute that you log on, every single piece of armor on your character is going to become 750, which is the max level right now. Oh, man. So that starting on Shadowkeep, day one, October 1st, you can go to the moon and figure out why it's freaking haunted. Oh, man. And I'm excited. Sounds amazing. Even though all my characters are 750 and they all have really good gear. but That's great. Are you going to play it on Google Stadia or no? Yes or no? PC. Quickly. Quickly. I already bought it on Steam. Google Stadia, yes or no? No, I already bought it on Steam. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a good pick. Pretty sure you've already talked about Shadowkeep before, but it does look amazing, and I am actually kind of excited about it in if, conjunction with Stadia. So I yeah, if, the only we'll problem see. is we'll if you get it, it on Stadia, we can't play together. Well, that's your it's problem. It's cross save, but not cross platform. Yeah, that's, that's your that's your problem. That's your <laughs> well, problem. you can play it by yourself. I don't care. I'm Maybe. just saying. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I we'll see how it goes. You have a PC with a 1080. 1080 is old news now, bro. I had somebody tell me that a 2070 would be a 10. It's like better than a 1080. I should sell my card. Uh, it actually is slightly, but not by enough that matters. I would just buy another 1080 and just run two of them. Um, that's a good pick. It doesn't have RTX on. I don't care about RTX on. My pick is... Yeah. Oh, it's actually over there. Hold on. Oh, I could have kept talking about Shadowkeep while he did that. He is uh, trying not to knock over the laptop while he goes and grabs something. He's got a very weird box. Oh, I know what that is. I saw that last week and I thought you just had that. Making noises. Making... Headphone noises. He's back. Yeah. All right. So my pick this week is the iFixit uh, mini screwdriver kit. So this is nice because it comes with a nice, really nice little uh, kind of small screwdriver. This is designed for those little projects that have like tiny little 
Torx head screws and metric, metric screws and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it has a whole set of the actual bits. The screwdriver itself is really nice. And it comes with this bendy. Oh, those are useful. Angled extension. So it allows you to get into those nooks and crevices and still be able to turn things, which is pretty neat. Uh, so I was using this on a couple of different things for disassembling and reassembling a couple of keyboards. Forget what else I was using? How many it keyboards on. do you have now? It's like that photo I sent. I'm up to four. I'm up to four, but I think that the the one I just bought is the last one. I think it's the last one. What did you just buy? Uh, I just bought the Ann Pro Two. Oh, is that the one you showed me last week? Yeah, it's the white one. Uh, it's wireless, sixty percent. I just took it to work today. Only had a day. It's uh, it's okay. It's okay. It has uh, it has some advantages. Has some disadvantages. But I think that's that's how everything with keyboards are. Anyway, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> so this toolkit, I I picked it up to do some work on some keyboards. But I've also found it helpful on various other things. So if you need a tool, a, a small screwdriver kit for things like fixing your phone or anything with the tiny little screw heads, this is the one you want to get. Because most of the other ones that you're going to see out there are just cheap crap. They're going to fall apart on you. Uh, these guys know what they're doing. And they typically use the actual kits that they sell in their actual disassemblies. So like when they film their videos or like take their pictures of when they're you know, replacing the screen on an iPhone or taking the battery out of a MacBook or stuff, they're actually using these kits that they sell in those in those in those teardowns. It'd be funny if they use their competitors one. Well, they, these are <laughs> way nicer than anything. No, I know. I'm just kidding. Be funnier. So that that's how you know because they have such a a reputation for doing a really good job with like getting really detailed the teardowns and uh, really figuring out how things like batteries are hooked up or how different screens are attached to your phones and such. So. Uh, I would say that iFixit is a name brand that I trust at this point. You know, they've been very outspoken about some of the engineering things going on with like phones and non-upgradable components and the whole battery fiasco and a lot of different things. And I tend to agree with them on a lot of those points. So I feel pretty good about supporting them by buying their toolkit. And I have a toolkit that helps me do things. So that's going to be my pick. I'll have a link to it in the show notes down below the episode on our website. Greg, where can people uh, send you cool links to cool articles? Discord. Discord. That's a good one. We have Discord. We'll have a link to the Discord in the show notes. You just click on it and sign up. Make sure you send funny memes to us. You can make fun of me for having a bunch of keyboards. That's that's. that's I sent him time. one earlier with like 14 keyboards. And under no, that window. guy had like 30 keyboards. Yeah, that's you. I don't know what you're talking about. I have about. four. Yeah, yeah four. That's a yeah, difference. times three is close to what he has. <laughs> Four times three is close to what he has. Yeah, 12. He didn't have 30. He had about 12 of them. No, he had no. He had 12 on the first two rows. Each one of the, each one of the rows was six oh, keyboards. I, like, I counted. Whatever. That's going to be you. He had 30 keyboards. Well, that's you. There, there are levels, Greg. I'm not going to buy yeah, any more well, keyboards. I'm not going to buy any more keyboards. I'm not going to buy any more keyboards. Anyway, if you want to send us funny memes or tell us how much you love listening to the show, the Discord is one of the best places to do it. If you'd like to reach out on Twitter, Greg is at Kogorski. I'm at Al Park. Show is at a public function. New episodes every Tuesday. Links are posted there. I like to retweet them. 
So if you follow me, you'll see it. If you follow the show, you'll see it. Greg will start retweeting them as well eventually at some point on Twitter. So if you follow him, you'll see it too. Uh, but those are good ways to find out when we have new episodes up. If you want to listen to us on the web, follow function.show. This is episode number 35. Wow. 36th episode. So we'll be at publicfunction.show backslash 035 for the audio, pictures of our smiling faces, all the show notes, all the links, all the other episodes too. You can always go there and listen to us there. The episodes are also posted on dev.2 backslash public function. Shout out Ben Halpern. Shout out all the fantastic people over at dev.2 for having us along the ride with them and the thing that they're doing over there. Fantastic community. Just you should create another really, website really called Hallowed Halls. Really, really good community over there. Really great stuff. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, publicfunction.show backslash contact is the way to do it. You can email us directly as well. Hello at publicfunction.show. Uh, those emails come directly to my phone and I read them. Every single one. Tell us something nice we'll read on the air in front of everyone for the whole world. Greg, do you have anything else for us? Shadowkeep. Shadow keeps coming up. Moon's haunted. Great. See you next week. Yep. You know what will still be around is CSS. Nah. CSS will last longer than Someone is going to make a better visual language than CSS. They would have by now. They would have by now. (laughs) Oh, man. Everything everything that we have that has tried to make CSS better for us has been some sort of shim or wrapper or layer on top of the existing protocol. Well, CSS itself is not that bad. It's all the stupid stuff around it. Like things not working, like the box model not working. No, properly. it's just it's just not, not straightforward. It's a limited set of rules. Well, it's a very wide ranging set of rules that doesn't actually know the problems that it's trying to solve. Mm-hmm. And so everything is a is a hack. Everything is a shim. Everything is a uh, a fix that's supposed to be temporary. And yet, there are no there's no one true way to do anything in CSS, and that's part of the problem, but also part of flexibility. So that's an interesting one. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know it's a funny joke that Greg doesn't like CSS and doesn't know CSS, but it can be pretty complicated to understand CSS well and to know how to put things together and how to, especially debugging. Debugging CSS is tricky because you've got tags on tags on tags and things are nested and you've got rules on rules and specificity is weird. And yeah, I don't know what I would do weird. without Chrome's, um, what do they call it? The, uh, the inspector? No, well, obviously, but no, the effective CSS, whatever they call it, the computed CSS, where it's like... Oh, the computed styles. Yeah, that one. Where it shows you what is actually being rendered. It shows you everything that's applied, yep. and then from any file and anywhere, and why it's being overridden, and yep. what else defines that file, but is being superseded, and that makes... That's, yep. that's some good stuff. It won't tell you why, though. Like, it doesn't have a model of telling you, like, this has a specificity of 2.63, and this other one has a specificity of 9.75, or anything like that. But it will tell you which ones are being overridden and which ones aren't. Yeah, it'll tell it's you. On like, you to be, it's on you to figure it out. Yeah, but it gives you something. That if you're like, why is this the wrong color? It'll be like, okay, colors applied on these 15 places. Yeah. If you didn't have that, there's no way you'd be able to figure that stuff out. <laughs> we used to do that without it. Do you remember we IE? Used, oh, jeez. 
Oof. I was on the very tail end of IE. I remember being very into Chrome uh, when it first came out because as with the promise of any new browser. I remember when, I remember when Firefox I remember when Firefox was, was new, the promise thing. And it was like super fast and the new thing and the new hotness. And I remember when it time, lost man. its uh, grandeur to Chrome and then later they came back with the Firefox developer edition, which was really cool because they had... Still really cool. It's blue. Sure, but they actually have like a focus on making a developer edition, which is cool. It's blue and it's dark. Okay, but they have a focus on making one that's designed for developers. It's essentially But you know what's funny? Canary. That's what Chrome is. That's what Chrome is. <laughs> well, Chrome has all the developer tools in it. They don't like hide them like Safari does. We have to enable them just to see them. It's ridiculous. 